I felt like the Lord prompted me more than once uh, as I was reading Ephesians to preach out of Ephesians. It wasn't where I thought I was going. I thought I was actually on my way to Hebrews. And the things that he highlighted in that context was relationships. Now, uh, this will be, I think, the seventh message that's coming out of Ephesians, but I haven't really touched on relationships much. And I'm not preaching Ephesians. If I was preaching Ephesians, then we would look at all of the, the, um, the setting within that church when Paul wrote that letter to that church. So it's not like a, a Bible study on Ephesians. It feels as though I've primarily been just, wow, you can't not talk about this. Wow, you can't not talk about this. Wow, you can't not talk about this. Well, today's message is absolutely about relationship, and it's how the relationship happens, how it's restored between us and God. So I'm starting chapter 2, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, read like this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So he's describing saved people before they were saved, that they were, they were working, walking, living, according to the prince of the power of the year. That's one of the ways that the Bible describes Satan. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So all of us church people, at one time, before we accepted God's graceful gift of Jesus Christ, we were children of wrath. Wrath was our destiny. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now this next verse, next two verses, is really the gist of what I'm going to be speaking from today. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. There's a scripture that came to my mind when I was praying, but I couldn't figure out where it fit in this, in this message. And um, then I thought I did figure out where it fit. And I, th- I think it does fit there, and we'll get to it in that context. But I feel like the Holy Spirit is stirring me to share that scripture now before we go through and we talk about grace and faith. It is by Grace, you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. So what we're going to talk about today is grace and faith in the context of salvation. Because you find the Greek words behind those multiple times in the New Testament. And they don't always have the same implicit meaning that they're speaking to. So let me share with you the scripture that I I think the Holy Spirit wants you to hear now at the beginning. And then you'll hear it again at the end. And this is from 2 Corinthians 13.5. So you find it right at the end of the list there. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. 
Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail the test? So maybe the test for all of us today will be to hear the word of God and then measure or test or somehow evaluate our own situation with regard to what the word of God says so that we don't ultimately fail the test. But if we find that we did fail the test, there's no shame in that. We just have to decide whether or not we truly want Jesus as Lord and Savior over our lives. Okay, that said, saving grace. Let me, originally when I started this message, it was, it was really only about saving faith. But I thought, you know, he said, by grace through faith you are saved. So grace is an act of God. Faith is the act that we provide into the equation that we might be saved. Even the faith itself comes as a result of grace that God provides to us so that we can be saved. Let me just give you some statements that will help you to um, picture grace in the context of saving grace. It's something provided outside of obligation. It's not required, but done anyway. So there is no requirement on God to provide Grace, to offer us salvation, is, is totally a gift. When we see it as a gift, you have to understand it's a conditional gift, but it's a gift, and it's by grace means that he's not in any way obligated to offer us salvation. It's only by his grace that he's choosing to do that. Um, and, and this grace, this saving grace, is a gift provided by God which gives us the opportunity to be saved. By his grace, you are not saved. By his grace, you have the opportunity to be saved, okay? All right. Grace is also the empowering act of God that enables kingdom living. So even once we have said yes in the way that we're required to say yes so that we can receive that gift of grace, it's more grace that allows us to actually work out our salvation, to become like Jesus is because he provides grace unto us. Grace is the goodness and mercy of God that doesn't condemn us in our sin if we are in Christ Jesus. It's important to understand that the covenant that he has presented to us is a covenant of grace. But grace isn't grace that allows anything. Grace allows that you can sin, right? Under the law, if you sin, right, the wages of sin is death. Your eternity is sealed in your sin in that you die eternally and you spend your eternity away from God ultimately in the lake of fire. Grace isn't a license to sin, but because of grace and your heart being turned to Jesus, you can sin and you don't find that you've been cast away forever by God. He provides grace that even if you sin after having made the commitment of Jesus as Lord over your life, you're not dead in that sin. That's what grace looks like. Grace is a conditional gift. By grace you are saved. I guess I kind of copied the, or, or covered this. By grace who is saved? Is everyone saved because God provides grace? No. Everyone can be. It's an opportunity. Those that would sincerely confess Jesus as Lord over their lives and those that would, by understanding what he did, would receive him by trust as Savior are the ones that exercise the gift of grace that God has placed out there. But if a person chooses not, to trust Jesus, or a person chooses not to give their lives to him as Lord, then even though that grace to be saved exists, they're not saved. Okay. Would you put up the first picture that I drew? 
I call this the grace pendulum. In the church, there is this um, pendulum kind of thing of grace and the understanding. I, I, the words I used on the left, if the pendulum is swung way too far that direction, the, the thing that, that can happen. Now, every person that has a, what I would consider to be um, a misunderstanding of God's grace does not end up, even though they're understanding. Where I say balance, that's probably a bad word. Perfect, perfection, the pendulum right in the center where it belongs, is really right understanding of God's grace. Far to the left is this thing called licentiousness. But people that have maybe an overemphasized um, sense of what grace is aren't necessarily all given to licentiousness. And licentiousness is, is walking without restraint. So if, if you read the Bible anywhere, uh, certainly in the New Testament, you see all the do's and the do nots of Scripture. And people think, oh, you know, oh, you talk about this kind of stuff, that's religion. It's like it's not religion. It's instruction. And if we obey the instruction, then we will walk in the gifts and the peace and the holiness that God is wanting us to walk in. But if we say, hey, it's okay, I can do whatever I want because of grace, I'm not under law, I'm under grace, then sometimes people will allow that to lead them over to this area of walking without any restraint. So that's what that's supposed to represent with that one on the other side. And then if the pendulum swings too far, like, you know, there is no grace kind of a thing, law is probably not the best word. Maybe works is a better word to be over at that end of the spectrum where you get back into this mindset of earning your salvation. Remember, you're saved by great by grace through faith and not of yourselves it's not of your works there is nothing that you could do by way of goodness of of working that will bring you salvation it's only that god offers it in grace and only that you receive it by faith but if you if you have such a small understanding of grace you can get back over here where your response is what you have to do what you have to do what you have to do and that's as off as the other side is of hyper grace that leads potentially to licentiousness. Okay. Let me give you two verses from Romans chapter 6. Man, if Romans chapter 6 is one of the most awesome chapters of Scripture in the Bible in, in regard to all this kind of stuff because Paul, he talks of the glory of grace, but he also talks about the, the constriction of, of what grace really is. Um, 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Because just part of that, he says that where sin abounds, all the more grace increases. So he's got this picture of people are going to be like, awesome. Where sin abounds, more grace. Grace is good, so I'll just sin like crazy so that I can experience more and more grace. He says, no. For uh, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And then a little bit further down in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, he says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. See, a right understanding of grace doesn't give you the license to sin. And a right understanding of grace makes you understand that you don't have to work in order to obtain the salvation that came by grace through faith. The area, can you put the picture back up again for me just real quick? The area that concerns me, that I'm going to speak most to today, is not the area where 
we might swing too far towards works and we don't understand our salvation, but where grace is preached in such a way that it could lead somebody to licentiousness. That, that's the area that I'm going to speak to. Sometimes that's called false grace, and, and, and sometimes what's preached as grace is false grace. It's somebody describing a grace that God does not offer to us as grace, or slippery grace, or um, hyper grace. There's, there's a movement within the body of Christ that is so focused on grace that it doesn't take into account the expectations of God necessarily unto holiness. A couple of scriptures that I'll share with you along that line. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. I solemnly charge you, now this is Paul speaking to Timothy in this letter, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That time has probably been every minute since Jesus was here. You can see in the, in the letters in the New Testament where the apostles are dealing with these deceptive teachings this false grace kind of a thing. And what happens then is people will try to define grace in such a way that it'll meet their flesh where it's at instead of their flesh going on the cross where it belongs. So they'll find somebody who will speak as though they were in authority the things that they want to hear and that will be the teacher that they'll choose for themselves. And for the person that doesn't read the Bible, man, that person is so much at risk because they don't have an ability to discern necessarily what they're hearing is truth or it isn't truth. So just a plug, man, you've got to read your Bibles. I mean, as, as much as I pray that I would never improperly divide and, and preach, the Bible says not too many of you should desire to be teachers because you come under greater judgment as a teacher. So I, I mean, I'm not interested in any judgment. So I pray all the time, Lord, please, please don't let me speak any falsehood. But I might sometimes. Because, and never from a bad heart, I hope, but just from being wrong. So if you read the scriptures, all of you read the scriptures, and I'm out of line, somebody's going to tell me, and you at least yourself are going to know, you know what, I'm not holding on to that because I don't see where it aligns with truth. Okay, that was uh, 2 Timothy, Ephesians 5, 6 through 10. <sighs> Thank you for the grace. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the, in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So there are those that will deceive. And, and honestly... I'll bet you that 90% of those that deceive don't even do it with a heart to deceive. They're deceived. And then they deceive out of their own deception versus I'm just going to lead all these people down this terrible path and they're, they're just going to you know, die and they'll be sons of disobedience and the wrath of God will be on them. Hallelujah, that's my goal. I really don't think that's true. Maybe there's some that are just so infested with evil that that's what they're doing. But I think most people 
that would speak a deceptive word don't even know it's a deceptive word. And, and it just comes out when they think they're doing good. Let me give you some examples. You could find a church, if you, if you were a person who was drawn towards someone of your same gender, like sexually drawn towards someone of your same gender, you could find a church and a, and a preacher that would work the scriptures in such a way that they would tickle your itching ear and they would make you feel okay about that you want, that you can have what you want and that the rest of the church, all of orthodox understanding of scriptures is wrong but your desire for something that the Bible pretty darn clearly, absolutely clearly says is sin, isn't sin and you can do it. Now you become a child of disobedience and you do it because you were deceived in this area where you wanted to be tickled because your flesh wants what it wants. Your flesh does not want to submit to anything. Flesh wants to be satisfied in its own desires. Um, You've probably heard this before. I don't believe that a loving God would do that. God loves me. Let me tell you about the gospel. Let me explain to you about Jesus. Let me tell you about sin and and how the whole world is lost without Jesus Christ. Oh, I believe in God. Okay, well, that's awesome that you believe in God. Do you have a relationship with God? Do you know where your eternity is destined? Yeah. How do you know that? Well, God loves me. And God is love. Somebody told me once that God is love. His very nature, all love comes from God. God would never, never send me to hell because he loves me. I love my children. I don't care what they do. I would never send my child to hell. That's a pretty good message. I mean, you can wrap your brain about, around that. James talks about two kinds of wisdom. Wisdom that's from above and wisdom that's worldly, earthly. And the worldly, earthly wisdom is demonic. But he still calls it wisdom. Because there's a logic that you can make sense of. You can connect dots and come to a conclusion that seems reasonable. You can't take God's love and extend it outside of what he offers. Does he love everybody with a perfect love? Yes. While we were yet sinners, he loved us. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. His love is wonderful and absolute, but it does not include the salvation of the world. It includes the opportunity for the salvation of the world. So you can see how these deceptive teachings, how people, I hear it with, oh, my celebrities sometimes, I just want to slap them. It's like you got a platform to speak, but you're speaking from such ignorance. You should go and research what you're saying before you say what God is or God isn't. He is loving. Nobody sends their son to go through what Jesus went through that doesn't love the object of Jesus' sacrifice. But there is no salvation in God's love by itself. So it's important that we understand grace. Grace in one context is the enabling power for anything and everything that we do. Anything and everything. But grace that's offered by God is a conditional gift, the saving grace, a conditional gift that if you choose to meet God's conditions will offer you salvation. So Paul says, by grace you are saved through faith. So grace is kind of the piece that God adds to the equation. Faith is the piece that we add to the equation. But faith is a misunderstood concept in, in its fullness. Everybody understands the concept of faith as a mental ascension. Do you, know, do you know what I mean when I say mental ascent? It's like I agree with that. You know, gravity, if I step off this thing, I will go this way, not this way. And because I understand gravity, my mind can ascend to the point of agreeing with the, the laws of gravity. 
everybody agrees with faith as a mental assent. But saving faith is a platform that rests on two columns. It's not a platform that rests on one column that we would understand as believing. Let me set this one up. (laughs) That was so cute. (laughs) Let me set faith up in Romans chapter 10. And I know I sound like a broken record around these scriptures, but usually I quote only 9 and 10. I'm going to put 8 in front and 11 at the end. So Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. Remember, now this is now we're starting to define faith in this in the context of saving faith the faith that's required to bring us to a saving relationship with god but what does it say the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart that is the word of faith which we are preaching so this is he's going to now define the word of faith that if you confess with your mouth jesus as lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. So he starts off talking about this word that's faith, and then he defines faith, and then he says, whoever believes will not be disappointed, and he puts us back in that place of tension where it would imply that only necessary is that I believe in the 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 kind of faith that's a mental ascension, but he just defined for us what saving faith is, that you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. And in our culture, we struggle with this because we don't understand lordship. If I ask 10 people, and honestly, I've had this conversation with people. When I say the word Lord, you know, in a biblical context, Jesus, what does that imply? And nine out of 10, well, or maybe seven out of 10, will tell me that he's God, that I'm confessing that Jesus is God. And, and, and believing and trusting that he is God is part of this whole faith equation. The other three that don't say that are not going to have any idea what it means. What it means is that if we were in England or any country that, that um, sits under a monarchy with a king, that the king is Lord. It means that the king is sovereign. It means that if the king says every Wednesday at noon you stand on your head for an hour, you stand on your head for an hour. You don't question it. It's not optional because the king is absolute and sovereign. When we confess Jesus as Lord, that's what we're saying, is that I don't have will of my own anymore. That any place that my will departs from his will, I don't have will of my own anymore. That my will is totally surrendered and submitted to his will for the rest of my life. That I am dying to myself, and I am living to Christ such that I am a slave to his master. He owns me. Now, he's a gracious master, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later, but we have to understand that when somebody says, would you confess Jesus as Lord? If you said, yes, I believe he's God in your heart, you wouldn't understand the question that the Bible is asking you to answer. Can you put up my second picture? So faith in the context, in the places in the Bible where the word faith is used or believing, the same Greek word behind it, and they're just talking about that you believe something. Saving faith is not that. Saving faith is a platform with two pillars. And the pillars are basically defined in this way. On one side, belief, trust, 
and faith, which is another way to say believing, not saving faith, but the faith that is I believe. I believe that I was a sinner. I believe that in my sin I was separated from God. I believe that Jesus Christ lived a perfect sinless life, which made him qualified to be the sacrificial lamb of God, sacrificed on behalf of my sin. I believe that. I believe that if I will trust in what he did and how it was done to him when he died and that he actually was risen from the dead, that I will find salvation in him and that I will find myself in him, ultimately in heaven with God. That's what the left side means. The right side is... is can described or defined with words like this, obedience, repentance, surrender. Surrender. My will says, you made me mad, you did evil to me, I'm going to respond to you in evil. But scripture says, God by way of his word says, never return evil for evil. You called me a name, I'm going to call you a name. It says, never respond with an insult to an insult. Now, you might not be perfect in your walking out of that lordship. But you have to be sincere in your commitment to that lordship. Understand? Let me take a little minute right here. The people that would, that would say that I don't understand grace would think that my pendulum is swung way over here to this side that's called works. And the way I would respond to that is that it's not. I understand what I mean when I say you're Lord. The Bible doesn't teach that if you fail in the perfect service of Jesus as Lord that you won't be saved. That's grace. It's grace that allows you to be saved even though you're disobedient in your commitment to Jesus as Lord. But if that little switch in your heart that says Jesus is Lord or Jesus isn't Lord, if you were saying the words but not sincere in your heart, Paul addresses that in Galatians. He says, God will not be mocked. So if you thought that you could say words but not be sincere in meaning those words and be saved, you're going to be one of the Lord, Lord guys. You'll stand before him and say it instead of necessarily saying, hey, didn't we cast out devils and prophesy and do all these things in your name? You're going to say, Lord, Lord, I said the words. And he's going to say, yeah, you did, but you didn't mean it. But I failed a hundred times. Do I really mean it? Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. How do I test myself? We'll talk about that. So what I want you to understand is that for yourself with regard to your own salvation and praise God when he gives you the opportunity to lead someone to him that they need to understand that the decision they're making is one of two things together and not or that they would believe as the Bible teaches that they would trust in Jesus that they would have faith in him as their salvation and that they would agree to him as Lord over their lives. Okay? Okay. Here's a couple of scriptures that I love because they, they kind of touch on both of those things. John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Stop right there. That's what it says. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Don't tell me about all this, I've got to die to myself. Don't tell me about all this Lordship stuff. It says right here that if I believe, I have eternal life. My flesh is happy with that answer. Sadly, it goes on. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. (laughs) But I believed, but you didn't obey. But I believed, but you didn't obey. It's an and, not an or. But the wrath of God abides on him. First leg of the thing, belief. Second leg, obedience. That's when G... I'll get there. 
And <laughs> Hebrews 3, 18 and 19. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? Now he's talking about Israel. They're wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. That's kind of the context of this one. And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. What if they believed? The ones that were disobedient would not enter into God's eternal rest. So we see that they were not able to enter because of disobedience? No, because of unbelief. He literally ties the two together in this scripture. And whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Belief, obedience. Now they're synonymous. They didn't get to go because they were disobedient. Why didn't they get to go? Because they didn't believe. It's the same. They had to have both. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. I almost didn't put this scripture in there, but somebody would have yelled at me because how can you talk about faith and not say the definition that the Bible gives in Hebrews? So, Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. Now, faith is the assurance or substance of things hoped for, the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. Again, you would, you would imply mental assent alone in order to gain approval. And, and this definition of faith is so awesome because if you're, um, you're going to adopt a girl from Ukraine, let's just pick some crazy thing that probably never happened. No, it will happen. I'm not prophesying. And they keep changing the rules and they move them from one orphanage to another orphanage and all these kind of things. And I say, she's my daughter. And Teresa says, she's my daughter. And someone says, she's not your daughter. She lives in Ukraine. There's no legal documents. It's like, no, no, faith is the substance and the evidence of her relationship in our family because we believe that God told us to. He made our hearts to fall in love with her and he's going to see that it's done. So in the absence of the court decree, in the absence of she wakes up every morning in my house, faith in what God asked me to do and faith in God's ability to see that it gets done is literally the evidence that makes her part of our family. Does that make sense, right? That's faith in that description. He ends this little part, for by it the men of old gained approval. So let's go now to James chapter 2, a, a long course of scripture, 14 through 26. And, and he actually speaks to that same thing. And he shows us both pillars. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Now, when you hear works in this context, the way I want you to listen is, is, is as a, it's a function of obedience. It's not that they worked to gain salvation, because you can't. Remember last week I said that to understand Scripture, you use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Commentaries are great, dictionaries are great, but Scripture in its fullness will interpret every Scripture we don't understand. Okay, so he's, he's talking about works here. Understand that as obedience, the thing that flows from obedience to Jesus as Lord. What use is it then, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So a faith that believes, without a faith that obeys, isn't the kind of faith that actually brings salvation. Faith, if it has no works is dead, being by itself. And, and the deception is, okay, I need to go do works. That's not, the, that's not the answer. The answer is that your faith is supplied by God so that 
Oh, I'm going to go down a Dory trail here. Faith alone without works is dead. Works isn't what you add to faith so that you can be saved with saving faith. Obedience, the, the, the lordship, repentance is what you add. And if you find yourself not in a place of works, your issue may not necessarily be your salvation. It may be your very relationship with Christ. Because love motivates way better than obedience motivates. Or, or that, obedience is the wrong word. Obligation motivates. Okay, continuing on, verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Useless to what end? He said at the beginning, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith and has no works? Can that faith save him? The faith he's talking about all by itself is useless unto salvation. Was not Abraham our father? Now, this is, it's been a long time since I was in Hebrews 11 in the previous course of Scripture. But this is where James speaks to that same subject, where, where um, the writer of Hebrews said, Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it, by this faith, the men of old gained approval, that they were right with God. Okay, now here's where James touches on that same subject. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? This might very well be what, what you're talking about. He offered uh, Isaac his son on the altar. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. That's faith at the top, not faith at the bottom. Not the faith that's in the pillar, it's the top faith. It's the, the broader definition of faith. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says that Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him under righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So what the Lord is saying through James is that the representation of the belief that he believed God unto righteousness was the fact that he had the mental ascension as well as he walked out the mental ascension because God told him to put his son on the altar. And then, praise God, if you know the story, he provided a sac. There was a sacrifice that needed to be made, but God tangled up a ram in a thorn bush or something and, and provided the sacrifice. He said, now I see. And he even said to Isaac, no, to, excuse me, to Abraham, that he was testing him. His faith was tested. When you have a trial and you're a child of God, you really need to see your problem as a testing of your faith because God's plan for us is so much bigger than our temporal comfort. It's so much bigger than our temporal comfort. And he gives us these opportunities to be tested so that we can see where we're at with our faith. He told Abraham, I tested you. Okay, Abraham passed the test and Isaac didn't get the knife. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith. That would be the faith that would be the pillar alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Okay, all this that's in my notes there, we already talked about. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. You can't work your way into salvation so that no one may boast. But then Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15, now, after John, this is John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, the good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Sometimes when I share with a Christian about the lordship of Christ and that Romans 10, 9 and 10 scriptures about salvation, they push back on me. No, no, Jesus said you had to repent. But repentance is 100% a function of Jesus as Lord in your life. You, as serving Jesus as Lord, would repent, would turn away from anything that was outside his will. So when Paul says to, to confess Jesus as Lord and Jesus says to repent, it's the same act with different words. All right, what's the point? Ephesians 2 would seem to imply that faith in the context of believing alone, but Jesus speaks of both conditions, repent and believe. Um, if you add verse 10 to the Ephesian scriptures, nine or 8 and 9, you add 10, let's re- read it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a re- as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Add now verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The good works are, are the fruit. Good works, I think, is more than somebody's cold and I gave them a blanket. Somebody was hungry and I gave them a sandwich. Good works is also somebody insulted me, but I didn't return an insult. Because... If I return an insult to someone who insults me, it's a spiraling increase of insult that has to come back, an insult that goes forward. You totally, totally disarm the enemy when you don't respond insult for insult or evil for evil because you've taken away all of its fuel. I'm almost done. I go back to Romans chapter 6. And I want to reinforce the necessity of the commitment in our hearts to Jesus as Lord. But I want you to be careful to understand that it's not a lording over. It's not like if if you have like this creepy, crazy guy who kidnaps a person and chains them up in their basement and, and commands them to be their slave and do these kind of things. See, that's the, that's the context that the devil wants us to see Jesus in. That's the context oftentimes that the world will see God in. And he's this taskmaster. And he's just, he's just driving us to do all these things and be good and don't be bad and all this stuff because he's just a harsh taskmaster. He's not. Okay, so let's go back to Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience? And it's important that you understand that the context is master and slave. You understand? Jesus is master and you're a slave. That's the relationship that you're signing up for. But you have to see Jesus in a true light. Okay. Do you not know that you present when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either in sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were slaves of that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. 
This is where I had to test yourself scripture again. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do not, rec- do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. So we have this, this master and slave relationship that we've signed up for with Christ. And it's hard for us in our culture to understand slavery in any kind of good sense. You have to map it in the context of good and bad. If, if I'm a bad master and you're my slave, every command I give you is for my benefit. I'm hungry, feed me. The room is dirty, clean it. I'm master, you're slave. You do what you're told. You do it with a smile on your face. Everything that I ask you to do, command you to do, is for my benefit. Okay? Now, the good, the good master is completely different. This is why a monarchy is ultimately the highest most excellent form of government that you can have. It's better than a democracy. It's better than a constitutional republic. It's better than any other kind of government with one caveat. Do you know what the caveat is? The king has to be good. Amen. If you have a bad king, monarchy goes to the bottom of the list. If you have a good king, monarchy goes to the top of the list. So in the case of a bad king, every command I give you is for my benefit. In the case of a good king, every command I give you is for your benefit. Don't return evil for evil. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything you do in obedience to Jesus as Lord is for your benefit and for my benefit and so that we can have relationship and we can walk out life in such a way that he will be glorified. What does he get when we're obedient to all his commands? What does he get? If they're all really for our very benefit, what does he get? He gets for the person who's chosen. Remember, you're a slave to whoever you submit yourself to for obedience. He gets the person who submitted themselves to another king to see the good king in you and you and you. And in your life, he's glorified. That's why he can call himself the light of the world because he was perfect in his obedience. The scripture says that God is the head of Jesus and Jesus is the head of the man and the man is the head of the wife. If everyone plays out their part the way that it's supposed to be, God gets glory and we are the light of the world. We are a city on a hill. And all those ones that God loves, remember, his love doesn't get him salvation. All those ones that he loves who aren't saved can see him in us and choose to want to become saved. And they can see that he's not an evil taskmaster. He's not a bad king. He's the perfect king, offering the perfect love and relationship. So when you see the two pillars It's easy to agree, to to tell somebody, hey, listen, if you just place your trust in Jesus, you can be saved. You gave them a platform that's only got one leg. It can't stand. It falls down. And heaven forbid they believe you. They go to heaven or to the gate, right? Ah, just that close. And they don't get in because they thought all they had to do was make some mental ascent. No, we seriously confess Jesus as Lord. He said, if you don't die to yourself, If you don't pick up your cross daily and follow me, what does that cross look like? It's the surrender to all those things that are unholy, that make us unattractive to the ones that he loves so they would be drawn into his good kingship, lordship. Amen? Amen. Okay. Father, this is, I've been praying so much for a heart of gratitude and that's why I cry when I look at my daughters because I... I'm so grateful. 
I would have never had the opportunity to experience the joy that just that makes me just break down in tears because I'm so overwhelmed that he would you allow me, use me through obedience to experience such a joy that I never, ever could have imagined. Father, thank you. Thank you that every desire of your heart is for goodness, that your very nature is love, and your love is perfect love. We can't prostitute it. We can't redefine it. We have to know it for what it is. Thank you for the opportunity to be saved. Thank you that you sent your son, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you resisted every temptation, every test, everything that every man, woman, child that ever lived or ever would live, all that temptation you had to deal with and you passed it all without sin. Thank you, high priest Jesus, for offering yourself, Lamb of God, on the altar for our sins. Help us to present you, to represent you in that same beautiful way as we put our sinful desires on that same altar by your grace and the power that comes through Holy Spirit to walk a holy life. Lord, that we won't do those things that your word teaches us not to do and we will do those things that your word teaches us to do because we understand them to be good. Thank you for the opportunity to be with you. Thank you for the infilling of Holy Spirit to empower us to change. Thank you for the opportunity to surrender and to serve, not just you, but each other in you, Lord. I pray that any sinfulness in our lives, anything that's outside of holiness, Lord, that we will surrender those things. And if we hold on to them because we have broken hearts, Lord, and we're fearful, I pray that you heal the hearts. And you break down the fortresses and the strongholds that would cause us to be deceived. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray such a blessing, such a joy and surrender, Lord, over each and every one of us. That, that as you ask us, and who knows what that is, Lord. Maybe it's not to adopt a child, but the glory and surrender is the same. Serving the perfect king with wonderful obedience. I pray that everyone can experience such a joy and surrender that it brings them to the same happy tears that you've brought me to. And Lord, I pray that I'm only barely scratching the surface of that joy myself. In Jesus' name, amen. Is going to enrich you when you begin to release the very thing you're struggling with. I didn't cause you to stumble over the very thoughts that you're thinking on, I caused you to let your heart be purged through the power of my comfort in you that will begin to see through the very love of my very presence to keep your heart and mind from ever being distracted from me working in you and comforting you I am releasing you now from the things that you are holding on to and trying to work out. Open the palm of your hand, drop the things into my very will and receive from me the strength and put your hands to the love of the truth, the very presence of my creating within you. Put your hands again to the hope that I will establish within you and let your heart begin to receive the love that I have for you.
Don't be moved by the situations again. Let it go. Cast it down. Pick up what I said to you. It is more than enough. And I will reveal my love to you. Let my love begin to be established in your heart. That you will begin to release the nourishment to others. Let your tongue be curved from the things that you have have spoken. And again, I say, let your tongue begin to be the pen of a ready writer. I have declared unto you and I will speak through you. Set your affections on me this day. I am your Lord. The Lord was giving me a lot the same message, so I, I want to share it. Um, he said, where there is no need, there can be no miracle. And that we need to embrace the faith walk he's given us and take that, that thing which he's planted so deeply in our heart and lay it before him and let it die so that he can be the resurrection and the life. So that he can get all the glory. So he can show himself powerful in our presence so he can be so he can be and do what what has he has planned for our lives unless a seed fall to the ground and die it cannot bear much fruit hallelujah